2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you've been with us, especially through chapter 4 and, and before that, you have to come to a conclusion or at least ask yourself in your mind, how the heck did Paul make it through the ministry? I mean, everywhere he went, he was just come against physically, mentally, spiritually. He was constantly attacked everywhere he went. And we saw in the scriptures where he he even referenced the fact that he was was hard-pressed in verse 8 of chapter 4. On every side, yet not crushed, but were perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How many of you, if they were sitting there and you're in the ministry, you could have been called by God to, to go someplace and let's call it work. And they sit there and they just don't like what you're saying and doing. And they take out rocks and start throwing them at you to, to strike you down. How long would you stay at that job? You would be sitting there, I want to sue. I'm gonna, you would be just screaming. You wouldn't put up with it. The same thing in the ministry. God's called you into the children's ministry. And you walk in on a Sunday and they start throwing rocks at you because they just don't like the way you're giving, a, giving the word. They're just stoning you. And I was wondering, like, what is going on on the other side of that wall? Now, some of you have been in the children's ministry. You thought you were going to get hogtied and, and burn at the stake maybe. But you ever thought of what Paul went through physically and mentally and spiritually being in the ministry? Serving God that he's called him to serve. We've all been called to serve. Once you become a child of God, you are called to serve in the body and outside of the body. That is not a question mark. It is just waiting for you to hear from God of where you're going to serve. Not if, but where. And it's not what you determined. It's what God determines. The place. How, what, when, here. All that is all determined by him. Are we willing to be that flexible? Even when you have the things that we see that Paul went through. We see the fact that in chapter 4, it came came really down to a couple of verses there. If you remember in verse 4, it's verse, uh, chapter four, 4, verse 1, but also in verse 16. What's that theme? Paul says, what? He says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. All the stuff that's going on in our life, at work, and our ministry with, at work, our ministry within the home, our ministry within the church, our ministry in our neighborhood, do not lose heart what God has called you to do. Because he's called you to do it. And he's going to equip you and strengthen you and encourage you and lift you up and carry you at times to do the work he's called you to do. You just have to be faithful in doing it. But how did this man be faithful in this ministry that God's called him to be? What motivated him in his service for his Lord? What motivation in faithful service that Paul we find Paul in. Well, in chapter 5, we're going to see that. It says right here in verse 1 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What a promise. So Paul starts off by saying there's a promise to be faithful in the ministry, to be faithful in serving God and faithful in doing what God's called you. It starts with a promise that he says he's, he's giving to you and I. He says, yes, I know that this tent, this tent is, is referring to your and my body, our physical body that houses us. Right? Because our body is not who we are. The outward is not who we are. It is the spirit, our soul within us. That is who we are. This is, just, this is just the vehicle God has chosen for you and I to carry us around in this, in this earth. He's prepared this body for this environment called the earth. 
and it's temporary. Now, I know that's shocking for some people in this world because they think that they're supposed to keep this tent in top shape, which is not a bad thing because it's a temple that God lives within. And we want to keep it healthy until the Lord takes us home. But some people think they need to improve on it. Some people, it's gotten so bad that the enemy thinks and has gotten in their heads so much, they don't accept the body that God has given them. They don't like their tent. They're not content. They want to upgrade. I don't like the color. I'll change it every month. No. <laughs> so we're, you know, some just don't like the way you have to put it up. I just want it easy. I don't want it's hard to put a tent. But when you think of a tent, this earthly house that God has given us to live in, it says it's, it's going to be destroyed. It's, it's going to fall apart. It's temporary. A tent is temporary. When you have a tent and you're living in a tent, you're not thinking, oh, this is where I'm going to live for the next 70 years of my life. Yes, that is true. If the Lord tarries and, and brings you through this life for 70 years, yes, it is the tent he's going to use. But remember, in comparison to eternity, that tent is temporary of 70 years. It's just temporary. So Paul is sitting here and says, this building is not the believer's heavenly home. That's not what he's talking and referring to here, this tent, because he promises us that, and obviously in John 14, 1 through 6. But this speaks to the believer's glorified body that he's going to give us, because this is not our glorified body. As much as you glorify your body, for some, as we learned in the, in the marriage conference, you guys have the ability to just, just bring Atlas out at any point in time, you know? You sometimes glorify the body because you get into the weight room. Or you come out of the, the spa, you ladies. But that's, but that's just keeping the tent in good shape and keeping it moving. You know, uh, Vernon McGee used to say, well, the, if the barn needs painting, paint it. You know? So there's nothing wrong with, you know, keeping up the tent. But you understand it's temporary. God's given us a promise that he has a building from God. He is going to build the house. He is going to give you a new glorified body in the future. No more pain, no more suffering, no creaks and pops and snaps and crackles through every joint when you move it. I assure you, it's going to be perfect because the Bible says it would be perfect, right? But this glorified body, this, yes, this earthly tent is weak, it's temporary, it will be destroyed, it's decaying, it's falling apart. You just keep it going and some duct tape sometimes and you just keep it going. But God says that in heaven, he's going to give us a body that he's made, not made with man's hands, not with the top plastic surgeon of the day, but he will create that new body for you. Now, do I know what that body will look like for me? How's it going to look like? You know, We always have those promises we kind of talk to ourselves, because we certainly are just talking to ourselves. God, I want to be taller. Well, I don't want to be that tall. I want straight hair, not curly hair. And we go through these little gymnastics in our heads. But what we've come to realize is that we need to come back to what God says and says, not to worry about that what you're going to wear, what you look, it's all temporary. Because I have something even greater for you that I'm going to give to you, your glorified body. But how do we know that he's going to do this? How do we know that we're going to have this glorified body? Because we trust the word of God. We trust the word of God. That is simple, right? Sometimes we ask the questions too many times. What, how, how is that going to be? And how, just simply trust the word of God because he says he's going to give you a glorified body. And just be content with that. You don't have to know what it's going to look like before you get there. 
all you know is going to be good because he's a good, good father. Did we not worship him that? We don't have to turn to Ouija boards to find out our future. We don't have to turn to a deck of cards or fortune tellers. We don't have to sit there and look at our horoscopes and all kinds of mediums and spiritists and everything else in the sun that the devil brings about to take your mind away from the word of God and turn to man's word. That is not what we do as children of God. When you have a question, you go to your father. You do not go to someone else. Are you with me? Because God had told us all that we need to know in the pages of his word. And do you believe that? Because it's true. <laughs> Paul said, in, even in chapter four, 4, verse 14, he says that the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ. We know Jesus is alive. We know that death cannot claim us. We know and see, even in John 14, 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you will live also. Such promises that we have as children of his. So when God determines when to take down the tent of yours and mine, when he decides, okay, the tent is fully been used, it's time for you to come home to get you your glorified body, a new building that I have fashioned just for you. Custom made, you know. It's going to be perfect. Even down to the color you'll be content with. You ladies have been free. Guys, it's going to be solidly built. You don't have to do any modification. That is a man's dream to be able to buy a house without having to fix it up. It's a promise. Because the body is only the house we temporarily live in. And when a believer dies, the body goes to the grave, but his spirit goes to be with Jesus Christ himself. What a beautiful thing. In verse 2, we see, for in this we groan. In this body now we groan. Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. See, Paul was eager for Jesus Christ to return so that he would be clothed in this glorified body that he knew is a promise that God had given him. That all through, because Paul, through it, if you could picture Paul, he wasn't this statue of perfect uh, example. He was bent over, broken, scarred from the whippings and the beatings and the stonings and the, the, the nastiness of the eyes and all the things that we look and read about Paul's life. You can see this man's body outwardly was absolutely falling apart. Wouldn't you, if your body is falling apart, can't wait to have that glorified body? But he wasn't just talking about the groaning of how bad his body was hurting and it was old and crepid and falling apart with, you know, uh, arthritic issues and stuff. He's, he's groaning earnestly to desire to be clothed in that perfection that God had has created for him. He wanted more of God. And what God had for him. He didn't want to have to experience death. He wanted to be living right now, serving the Lord and say, Lord, come back for me and I'm ready for my glorified body. He didn't want to have to experience death. None of us want to experience death. But boy, do we want to experience that new life in Christ with that new glorified body that he promises us. So we groan. We groan because we don't even have words to explain. But when our groaning, we know in the scriptures that he even knows our groans of what that means. In verse 3, indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Paul is saying this mortal life that we live in, this right now, this body that we're in, this mortal life that's, that's it is, it's just a pure sign of, of this, this mark of humiliation, this, this mark of neediness because we're like naked, vulnerable, exposed 
to the elements, to the things, the disasters, the issues that go around in this life. I just, I feel like I'm, I'm just, I don't want to be found naked. I want to be clothed in the security that God has for me. Because Paul is simply saying that in eternity we will be clothed and not be naked. We're not going to have to be worried about vulnerability. We're not going to have to be worried about weakness and being exposed to the elements and these things that can be. We're going to be in the security of our loving Savior. Clothed in a house built by his loving hands. We will not be bodily bodilessness spirits see in this culture in Corinth the Greek philosophers thought that a bodiless spirit was the highest level of existence that you could be they thought of the body as a prison for the soul and to be able to free the soul it cannot can't live in this restrictive body that's their philosophy in those days And they saw no advantage in being resurrected in any other body. So here's Paul teaching, man, this old body is falling apart and in pain and suffering, all these things were going, we're going to have a glorified body. But the philosophers of the day didn't want to hear that. They thought it was a better thing to be free and not have a body to be restricted. They didn't want to have a body now. They didn't want to have a body in the future. They wanted to just have their soul, their spirit free. But here we see, to God, the body itself is not a negative. The problem is, is with our body now, it is with these self-corrupted, fallen bodies that we live in. That's our problem. It's not the body itself. It's the sin that has been corrupted, this body. It is what we're living in and dealing with, with the sins and the issues that we've had from our past. That's why we don't want to be in this body. Because we're paying for the consequences many times of what we've done in sin prior to coming to Christ. That's what we struggle with. But Jesus approved the essential goodness of the body by becoming a man himself. Because if taking out a body was not good, then why would our Lord come from heaven to come to this earth and take on a body like you and me? So it's not a body, it's not a bad thing. Because if there was something inherently evil in the body, then Jesus could never have added humanity to his deity. So we won't listen to those Greek philosophers. We won't listen to the people that say, oh, I just want to live in this body of mine. No, no, no. Let's glorify God because it's just light affliction. It's temporary, as Paul said in chapter 4. We're going to have a glorified body. It's only a matter of time. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan. Oh, here he is talking about groaning again. Being burdened. Oh, such weight. The burden of being in this body. But not because we want to be unclothed. Not that we want to get rid of a body and just have our spirit just free-flowing here, but further clothed, that mortality will be swallowed up by life. See, our new bodies will not be subject to death or mortality. Instead, Paul writes, even in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, if you remember, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. So death is going to be swallowed up by this new life, going from mortality to immortality. That is the promise of our glorified body that God is going to be given us. So when we receive our eternal bodies, life completely conquers death. We will never die again. What a promise! What a future that you and I as a children of God have that we can hold on to in the days where our bodies and the persecution that comes against us and the aches and the pains and the cancers and all these other things that are happening to our tent. It will not happen in eternity. It's a guarantee because God says so. And I believe it. And I do go by faith. Not by sight, as we will see, Paul will emphasize. Verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, God is in control. If you see this verse, Paul is saying God is in control. He who has prepared us, he's prepared us. It's not something you have to think, oh, what's the plans I'm going to use? Where do I go find those plans? What material am I going to use? What color? You don't have to worry about any of that. God is in control and he's preparing you. A new body. One that, who has given us the spirit of a guarantee. See, Paul is in control and has prepared us like a common jars of clay, as he, he referred to in chapter 4, the earthland, earthy vessels that he has. And that's through how God displays and contrasts his all-powerful ways through your life. He takes cracked pots like you and me, and his power shines through us to do his work. But imagine what he's going to do with the glorified bodies when we're in heaven. The Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer's body, he says in this verse, is a down payment of the guaranteed promise that he's coming back for you and I. See, because when you become a believer, once you surrender your life to Christ, your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in and seals you, giving a guarantee, a stamp that says, this body I own. This is, this is where I dwell. This is my dwelling place. I'm taking this person home to with me i have a preparing a place for them a new glorified body for them and it's not complete yet right it's a guarantee we're not in heaven yet we haven't got our glorified bodies yet so right now god is saying to you and i it's a guarantee i've got my stamp of approval because i am dwelling within you and that's why i know you'll know that i'm coming back for you to take you home Amen. and that's what you must focus on you don't have to do, regardless what anybody would say, other people say. All you need to know that God says right here in his scripture that he has a guarantee that he sealed you with the Holy Spirit and he's coming back for you. And he's going to make it complete by giving you a glorified body in heaven for eternity. A body that is designed for eternity. Not, this body's only designed for earth. The new body is going to be designed for eternity wherever he takes us. That is amazing to me. That is, to get your head around that, you just have to ponder what the truth is. So many times people say, but, but pastor, you just, you really don't know what my past is. I've never really shared all my past with you. You have no idea how dark and how far, how gone, how you really, I don't need to know. You know why I don't need to know? It's because all I know is that you're going to have a new body. You have a guarantee the Holy Spirit lives inside you because you're saved. And we're all going to heaven to praise him and worship him. That's all that matters because the past is the past. That's gone. That's no, that's no longer who you are. I just go with the guarantee that I see in your life, and that is the love of Jesus in you, and that's all that matters to me. That's why we get to move forward. Let's go. Let's not look back anymore. But Paul here, like in verse 2, earnest desires. That earnest desire that he's going to prepare and have that guarantee. If you look at the original modern Greek word there, it refers to, even in our words today, like an engagement ring. A man puts that engagement ring on as a guarantee that they're going to get married. It's that promise. We're going to get married. I'm going, to go get a, I'm going to get things prepared for that time we're going to get married. But you got the promise ring. you got that ring on, that engagement ring that says, it's going to happen. It's just only a matter of time. I'm coming back for you to be my bride. When you become a believer, you become the bride of Christ. And the bridegroom is coming back for you. 
The engagement ring is the sealing of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the promise, he is faithful. He's coming back for you, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what anyone tells you. Are you with me? So beautiful, so encouraging, realizing that the life of a Christian is being transformed, being prepared, and ready for the time when he comes back to take us home and give us that new body. Verse 6, so we are always confident, Paul says. We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. See, Paul could be confident. He was encouraged. Even this during this period of mortality, in this body that was broken, literally and physically beaten, mentally stretched beyond... But because Paul realized that this was temporary and a transitory state that he was in, that it was only a matter of time he was going to be in a completely new state, a new body, a new eternity, it didn't matter now. He just said, home is the body, but we are absent from the Lord. But then he continues on in verse 7, he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So he's saying to his writers here, to the believers at Corinth, I'm telling you, yes, I'm home in this body, but I'm absent from the Lord. The Lord is in heaven, but I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight because I know what God's promise is. That he is going to take me home and I'm going to get a glorified body. And that takes faith to do that, not sight, because I can't show you anything to prove that. I just know what the word of God tells me. Some people say, oh, you guys have a blind faith. That's an oxymoron. That is completely irrelevant. That doesn't even make sense. Have you ever thought about that? Because faith, you have a blind faith. What, it takes faith in the fact, that, the fact that you have to believe without seeing. Whereas sight, you see everything. You touch everything. You, you, if, unless you touch it and feel it, you can't move on. You can't make decisions. And that's a hard life to be in because you're never going to be in a point in your life where you get to see and touch and feel and make everything decisions based on touch and feel. But faith goes beyond you. It goes on to the fact that you trust in the word of God. The creator of the universe it's not like you gave your, your word. How many times have we given our word and we didn't follow through with our word? But when God gives you his word, that is as clear as can be of the fact that by faith, you know it's going to happen. It's without a shadow of death. So Paul is saying, we walk by faith. Just keep walking. Don't stop and do nothing. Some people say, oh, are you going to sit around on the couch and do nothing and you just wait for God to do something? No, no, no. The scripture tells me I have to walk. I got to walk. Continue to walk. I got to do my part here. But I'm not going to do it by sight. I'm just going to watch God daily take me through this walk, a daily walk in my life. And he will guide me. He will lead me. His path is straight. It's light. It's clear. These are things I just know from the word. And I, I trust it. I trust him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you? Paul did. To live like this, one must live in the light of the ultimate place and the ultimate person that you're focused on. I live by faith because I trust Jesus. I live by faith because I know it's temporary. I'm going to be in heaven. But rather than the immediate realities that we deal with. So many times people deal with just the immediate realities and get wrapped up into the emotions and the situations and the pressures. And you can go back and read Romans 8, 24 and 25. But 
We don't want to get wrapped up in the immediate realities. We want to take those immediate realities and bring them through a filter of what God says. But God says this for this situation. But God says this for this situation. But God, you're my Savior, Lord Jesus. I don't see how this is going to work, but I trust you, and you're going to bring, we're going to walk me through this dark valley. I just know it. Why? Because you're my Savior. You're not going to leave me. You said you're going to never leave me or never forsake me. So why would I worry and be anxious for the fact I think and I feel like you're going to leave me and forsake me? That's just a trickery of the enemy. So you just go back to walking by faith, not by sight, not by emotions, not by feeling, but be obedient to God's commands despite the hardships that obedience produces. Because sometimes being obedient to God, it actually leads to hardship. I'll remind you of this when we're in a... 10 degrees below zero, and, and I'll remind you, God, you were being obedient. Yes, God guided you to the North Country. It's okay. You just, <laughs> he's going to bring you through it, my brother. I know, sister, you're going to put another layer. I'm sure there's a good fur coat out there somewhere. Just be obedient. Because God's the one that commanded it. He's the one that orchestrated your steps. You know he brought you here. So you have perfect peace and joy knowing this is where God's called you and brought you. Even through the hardships. Verse 8, Paul says, for we, we are confident. Yes, we are confident. You notice it wasn't just him he was referencing. He, his little team that was with him that followed him around in the ministry. He says, we are confident. Yes, we're very confident. And what I'm talking, writing here to you, I'm very confident. Well pleased. I'm well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He says, oh, I'm confident of this. I am so happy. I'm so pleased because I know once I'm absent from this body, this tent that's wearing out, I'm going to be in the presence with the Lord. See, Paul was confident in his relationship with his Lord. The people of God, you and I, his children, believers, can be found in one of two places, either on this earth or in heaven. There's only two places. There is not a third place. When you are not in this body, you're on the earth. When you're outside of this body, guess what? You're in heaven with the new glorified body. None of them are in a grave. None of you are in hell. None of you are in some temporary place between earth and heaven. The truth that to be absent from the body means that we will be present with the Lord. And that verse is key for you and I because many times we come across some people who will then have teaching these, these false doctrines. There's two key false doctrines that are out there that if you know someone who comes across, I hope you bring them to this verse, chapter 5, verse 8. Because the two false doctrines is one is to refute the false doctrine of this soul sleep. Saying that, that believing that the, the, the dead are held in some sort of suspension animation until the resurrection occurs. And there's a teaching out there today that says that. When you die, you go into the soul sleeping, and you're going to hang out there for a while until the resurrection of the, of the church. Then you'll go to heaven. That is not true. That's false doctrine. The other one is the false doctrine is purgatory, saying that the believing dead must be cleaned up or somehow changed in this purgatory state through their own suffering and through prayers of others can be brought about to be brought into a state that they'll be prepared then to go to heaven. That is false doctrine that comes from that religion. Because when you're absent from this body, Paul says, the word of God says, you'll be present 
with the Lord. Your spirit leaves this body, this tent, and your spirit will immediately be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. That is a guarantee because the word tells us so. Are you with me? So be gentle with those who believe in those two faults, but at the same time, you're now equipped with the scripture to lovingly, gently help them understand what the word of God says. Not what I say, but what the word of God says, right? Not what you say, but what the word of God says. That's our foundation. And because Paul had this confidence, he was not afraid of suffering or trials or even his present dangers that he was finding himself in. Why? Because he says, what are you going to do to me? You're going to try to take me out? You've tried it millions of times. Everyone, the best of them, the best stone throwers tried to take me out, and it didn't work. The ship's going down. That didn't help. You know, the beatings, the lashes, that didn't stop because God is in control of my life. And when he says it's time for me to leave this tent, I am ready. It's not a problem for me. I'm going to be in the presence of my Lord. And that's where I want to be anyway. So you're doing me a favor. So don't think it's your, I'm going to threaten to kill you. Please, right here, don't miss. Because I know I'll be in the presence of my Lord. Because he's in control of my life. Paul did not see this this understanding that God has given him, this, this, this surety in his mind about the fact that he would be in the presence of the Lord when he's absent from his body. This did not give Paul a license to sin and take unnecessary risks. That's not what it does. But sometimes the pendulum shifts some people. All right, I'm going to be with the Lord. I want to be with the Lord. So let me go do some really high risk things that I have a 99 plus percent chance of dying. That is not what the Lord has asked you to do. That doesn't give you the license. Oh, you mean I'm just going to have that promise that I can just go freely sin and he's going to just accept me in my habitual sin now? No, that goes contrary to what the word of God says. He says, as we will see, please him in all things. And only do the things that God's called you to do. Don't you create your own list. Let him guide your steps. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. See, you have to take everything in consideration of what the Word of God says when you make decisions in, in line with what you're reading. But Paul did this by walking by faith and not by sight. He focused on the eternal unseen and not the temporal seen, as he refer, referenced back in chapter 4, verse 18. Heaven was not some nice, beautiful destination that was on his, in his bucket list that he wanted to accomplish someday. It wasn't some laissez-faire kind of an attitude. Oh, it's, I'm going to put that in my bucket list. Yeah, that sounds like fun. But Paul's mindset was motivated by and governed by eternal presence with the Lord. Every decision, everywhere he went and did and what he spent his time doing was in line or focused or filtered by and motivated by, governed by, controlled by the fact of what the presence of the Lord would want him to do. That is means completely surrendered to your master. That's when you can really truly say, Jesus, you're my Lord, because that is what you allow him to do. Your thoughts, your, what comes out of your mouth needs to line up with your behavior and the actions you take. So when you say, Lord, don't be Lord, Lord. Non-believers say, Lord, Lord. Non-believers say, God. But their actions, their motives, their heart does not line up with the, those words. Paul's words and his actions Perfectly matched up. Just looked at his life. 
Now, in verse 9, as we look at what we believe and how we behave and the fact that the, these two must come together, they must be in line, they must, be, they must not be polar opposites, we should be very motivated based on what God has done and is going to do. What mo- but the question is, what motivates you in serving the Lord faithfully? What motivates you when you get up in the morning to serve your wife, to serve your husband, to serve your children, to serve your boss, to serve your neighbors, to serve within the church? What motivates you? What drives you? Well, Paul made it very clear for his readers. He says, therefore, we make it our aim. We make it our motivation. We make it our drive. Whether present or absent, regardless if I'm in this body or I'm outside the body. To be well pleasing to him. So the very first clear indication what motivates Paul to do what he's done and what he continues to do is his number one motive is what? To please God. Now he's only experienced one aspect of what he just wrote, didn't he? He's only been able to experience in the body. To be to be to please God in the body. He has not had the opportunity yet. Well, now, but at the time when he wrote this, he had not been able to please his Lord in heaven yet. But he knew wherever he was here on earth or in heaven, his main motivation it was to please his Lord. Is it yours? Is that what drives you? And motivate you to do what God's called you to do is to please the Lord. Because trust me, there are selfish worldly motivations or aims. But Paul was not talking about a selfish aim. His aim was a holy ambition, a holy motivation. That honors the Lord. That pleased the Lord. That was his motivation. And because he wanted to please Jesus Christ, it will automatically go against those who do not want to please the Lord. It will automatically, you'll be in contrast with people who do not. And in this case, the Judaizers were completely butting heads with Paul because Paul wanted to please the Lord and do what the Lord said, and they did not want to do that. They wanted to do it themselves. They were self-promoting as a religious leader. They wanted people to worship them or put them and honor them. They wanted to benefit from the people. They wanted to, to get what they could get out of the ministry from the people and use the people for their benefit and for their pleasure. But that's not how it works. So that's the way it's supposed to work. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're, to, you're a slave. You're a servant to others. You're not to, to be in the ministry to get from the people. But these Judaizers, these religious ministers, people, they wanted to be men pleasers. They wanted to get people to please them and have them work for their purpose, for their agendas. Remember, a man pleasing ministry is cardinal, it's a compromising ministry. And God cannot bless it. And we will see how he will do that but if it's if the ministry is led by the spirit believers would put as much aim as much motivation into christian living and service for their lord to please them but their service to the lord will be in line greater than their motivation and their aim they put in their business or in athletics We just have to stop back. We don't have to say anything. You just have to look at someone's life and you can see where their motivation and their aim is in life. Where they put their time, their money, and their energy and sweat and tears. Then you know where their aim is. 
You don't have to say a thing. Just watch a person's life. But when you looked at Paul's life, you clearly knew where his aim, his motivation was. And that was to serve his Lord. Paul knows he would one day be evaluated by his master. He wanted to please him and to hear from him those beautiful words that we see in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't those the words you want to hear when your master comes back and brings you out of this old tent and takes you home? Do you want to hear, well done, good, faithful servant? Verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear, all appear, all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, here on this earth, in this body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul's second motivation here is in the service to the Lord because he knows that his master's coming back and when he's in his presence, there's going to be rewards from God. There's going to be giving account to the Lord for his faithful service or not. He's going to be standing in front of these piercing, perfect, holy eyes and are going to go see right through him and review everything he has done for the Lord while on this earth in this body. Now he's going to, God is going to open that up. He's going to look and nothing is going to not be seen by the Lord. God is going to see both the good and the bad. The good things that he, Paul did, the bad things that Paul did, and according to what measurement? The motive of the heart. According to what he has done. He's going to look at what was done. And then he's going to look at what was the motive behind what he done. And God is going to review that. Unfortunately, not every believer has the motivation for the Lord. But every believer is going to appear before the Lord. And the time to prepare for that critical meeting with your master is today. Today is the day you prepare for the meeting when you are in heaven. Before you get to the judgment seat of Christ, it's everything you do now and the motivation behind it, that is what is going to be talked about with your master. The judgment seat of Christ is that future event which will follow the rapture of the church when God's people will stand before the Savior as their works are judged and rewarded. Romans chapter 14, 8 through 12. See, Paul's aim, Paul's motivation was to meet Jesus with confidence and not shame. And you see that in 1 John 2, 28. The term judgment seat here comes from the Greek word bima, the bima seat, which is a step. In, during the Greek culture, in the Greek communities, they build these steps up, and the person in the position of authority, usually a Roman magistrate, will stand up there, there's the judge, and they have oration. They would talk about, they would give information, and people would sit down below looking up, and they would give the information for them to do as a community. But at times, they would bring out decisions or judgments as well at that Bema seat. A position of authority. And when you see that, you can go back in Matthew 27, 19 and Acts 12, 21. 
in Acts 18.12 to look at examples of what we're talking about. But it's also the same word is used during the Olympic Games or the Corinthian Games that they had in that culture at that time. People would come, they would race, they would, they would do the, the uh, wrestling, and whoever won, they came to the Bema seat, and those who were in authority overseeing the games would then lay the wreath over their head, showing that they successfully won. It's just like we know, right? There's always a position when you watch the Olympics and the games. There they are. They're up there high above. They're all looking down at the games. And here comes the people. They do their races. They do their competition. They come up. And then they come and they stand and they put the gold over one, the silver over another, then the bronze, putting out the rewards. That's what it's going to be like for you and I. Not something to fear. Because once we get up there, he's going to separate the good and the bad that we did in the name of the Lord, in the name of doing what we're doing for the Lord. He's going to separate the good and the bad. And he's going to reward you for the good. He's going to give you crown, crowns for eternity. Now the question is, what do you do with the bad? Well, first of all, the judgment seat of Christ do not be confused with another judgment opportunity. And that is called the, white, the great white throne judgment that is for non-believers. That's when Christ will judge the wicked non-believers. And you can go back to uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 to see that. But because of the gracious work of Christ on the cross... You and I as believers will not face our sins. John 5, 24, Romans 8, 1. But we will have to give an account of our service for the Lord. See, the judgment seat of Christ will be a place in heaven that reveals our motive in how we live and work here on earth now. This is not referring to salvation. Salvation is not the issue here. You're already saved. You're now in heaven. You're now meeting with your master. You're, you're a believer. You're now getting in front of him to be accountable to what you've done for him while you're here on this earth. So it's not a salvation. Is this One's eternal destiny will not be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. Because salvation is by faith, but our works that come from our faith will be evaluated. Why is that important? Because I don't have to judge the motive of why certain people do what they do in the name of the Lord. Because guess who's going to judge that? The master's going to judge that. It's freedom. It's very free. They're going to be accountable to him. That's who they're accountable to. And so when they get there, they're going to sort things out. Sometimes people, we look at the external and say, oh, look how much money they gave. Oh, look what they've done. Look at how they've just all the, the beautiful little things that they've done for, for the Lord. And I, I have a, an assurance that If it's done with the right motive, we'll see it here too. Because you're just going to sense the peace, the joy, and the love of Christ in what they do. You'll see less of them and more of Christ from those things that they do. It doesn't bring attention to them. It doesn't lift them up above others. It actually brings them down to a position of servanthood. These are indications we see in the scripture of knowing if we're doing it with the right motive. The character of our service to the Lord will be revealed, 1 Corinthians 3.13, as well as the motives of the heart that compels us, 1 Corinthians 4.5. The 
question might be for some of you. Is it sinful to desire God's rewards and recognition in heaven? No. It shouldn't be your highest motivation. Your motive as a Christian should not be how much rewards and how much recognition I can get in heaven. Our motivation is our love for our Lord. That is, should be our motivation. God, you have done so much for me. Your grace and your mercy has been bestowed on such a wicked man that I am. That it compels me to serve you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. When you have that focus, the fruit that comes from it will be rewards and recognition by your master in heaven. You don't have to focus on rewards. Like, what, what kind of rewards am I going to get? You know, that's usually an indication that your heart is probably not lined up with where God would want you to be. Just love him, serve him unconditionally, and watch the rewards and recognition will flow to you. One more verse, and then we'll take a break. Uh, we'll take, and take a stop for next week. I thought I'd get through the 21 verses, but man, it has not happened. Well, have it to the time. Verse 11, Paul continues, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. So we'll stop here today because Paul here says to the people, Knowing, you know me, you know what I've done, you know where I've been. I just explained where I'm going and where you're going to be going as a believer and the promises you can hold on to. Knowing, therefore, the terror, the oddness, the, the incredible, powerful God that we worship that brings to us a reverence the fear of the Lord is the start of what? Wisdom. So this, this he's talking, now this terror, this, this fear that can come of understanding, we persuade men. I persuade men of the truth of God, of who Jesus Christ is. I persuade them. Why? Because apart from God, they're going to hell. They're going to be judged at the, the great white throne judgment. How can I not go out and do whatever it takes to persuade man to understand who Jesus Christ is? Why? I, I, that propels me. That motivates me. I don't want anyone to, be, to face a powerful God that he is into judgment. So Paul says, I, for the terror of the Lord, I'm motivated to go out and persuade men. But we are well known to God. God knows our heart why we're going out and doing what we're doing. Because we want no one to perish. Because God says he wants no one to perish. I have that same heart. I don't want anyone to perish. And I also trust as well that you that I'm writing to, you, you believers in Corinth, I trust you in your conscience. I have a clear conscience. I know in your conscience, I'm just persuading you to follow Jesus because I do not want you to face that judgment, that terror of the Lord. Paul's simple message was, I have been delivered from the terror of the Lord and you can be delivered too. Come to Jesus. I want you to experience what it means to come to Jesus. Because I'm not facing the terror of the Lord, and I don't want you to either. We should be like Paul, shouldn't we? Who's passionately desired the men and women to come to Jesus. We must intend our hearts and our words to persuade men. Not through trickery, not through deceit, not through selfish gain, 
not through some notch on my belt, got another one to be with the Lord. Yeah, I led another one to the Lord. No. I just want no one to suffer. I've been set free. I just need to go out and persuade other people. They can also be set free from their sins, from the terror of the Lord. And that's what motivates me.